Summary for Daily Practice First of all, identify the luminous and knowing nature of the mind, unclouded by thoughts. Then, probe the deeper nature of the mind again and again to reveal its absence of inherent existence, its emptiness. Do this by reflecting on the mind's dependence on causes and conditions. Also, reflect on the mind's dependence on its parts. This means that any length of time that passes in the mind depends on earlier and later parts of that time period, beginning, middle, and end. Finally, try to realize the compatibility of the appearance of the mind with its emptiness of inherent existence. See how these two mutually support each other. Part 5. Tantra In Buddhism, there are basically two types of practices, sutra and tantra. So far, we have been discussing sutra practice. The special purpose of tantra is to provide a faster path so that qualified practitioners can be of service to others more quickly. In Tantra, the power of imagination is harnessed to meditation in a practice called Deity Yoga. Deity Yoga is in three phases. 1. Replace your mind as it ordinarily appears full of troubling emotions with a mind of pure wisdom motivated by compassion. 2. Substitute your body as it ordinarily appears composed of flesh, blood, and bone, with a body fashioned from compassionately motivated wisdom. 3. Develop a sense of a pure self that depends upon purely appearing mind and body in an ideal environment fully engaged in helping others. As this distinctive practice of Tantra calls for visualizing yourself with the Buddha's body, activities, resources, and surroundings, it is called taking imagination as the spiritual path. Let us consider a qualm about this practice. You are considering yourself to have Buddha qualities which you presently do not have. Is this, then, a correct type of meditative consciousness? Yes. Your mind is involved in understanding reality, out of which you are appearing as a deity. Therefore, your mind, from this viewpoint, is correct. Also, you are purposely imagining yourself as having a divine body, even if you do not presently possess one. This is an imaginative meditation. You are not convinced from the depths that you actually have pure mind, body, and selfhood. Rather, based in clear imagination of ideal body and mind, you are cultivating the sense of being a deity, compassionately helping others. To be a special trainee of Tantra, that is to say, the kind of trainee for whom Buddha specifically set forth the practice of Tantra, a practitioner must have sharp faculties and have already attained stable wisdom realizing emptiness or be ready for speedy activation of this wisdom. The requirements for just practicing Tantra are less rigorous. Still, to engage in Tantra at any level, demands a powerful intention to become enlightened for the sake of others, and a feeling that this needs to be done very quickly. At the beginning of tantric practice, the basic way to develop calm abiding is to meditate on your own body as if it were that of a deity. When you meditate on a divine body, first you meditate on emptiness, gaining as much awareness of the emptiness of inherent existence as you can. 
when you have acclimated to this state, you use that very mind itself as the basis out of which the deity appears. The mind realizing emptiness appears as the deity and as his or her surroundings. First you meditate on emptiness. Out of that the deity appears, then you concentrate on the deity. In this way, deity yoga combines wisdom and compassionate motivation. A single consciousness realizes emptiness and also appears compassionately in the form of an altruistic deity. In the sutra system, although there is a union of wisdom and compassionate motivation, the practice of wisdom is only affected by the force of the practice of motivation, and the practice of motivation is only affected by the force of the practice of wisdom. They are not contained within one consciousness. A distinguishing feature of Tantra is that they are contained in one consciousness. Inclusion of motivation and wisdom within one consciousness is what makes Tantra's progress so swift. When I was a young boy, Tantra was just a matter of blind faith. At age 24, I lost my own country, and then after coming to India, started really reading Tsongkhapa's explanations on emptiness. Then, after moving to Dharamsala, I put more effort into the study and practice of the stages of the path, emptiness, and tantra. So it was only in my late twenties, after gaining some experience of emptiness, that deity yoga made sense. One time, in the main temple in Dharamsala, I was performing the ritual of imagining myself as a deity of highest yoga tantra called Guya Samaja. My mind continuously remained on the recitation of the ritual text, and when the words I myself came, I completely forgot about my usual self in relation to my combination of mind and body. Instead, I had a very clear sense of I in relation to the new, pure combination of mind and body of Guya Samaja that I was imagining. Since this is the type of self-identification that is at the heart of Tantric Yoga, the experience confirmed for me that with enough time I could definitely achieve the extraordinary deep states mentioned in the scriptures. To practice Tantra, it is especially important to gain access to the transmission of blessings from previous great beings. Blessings also exist in sutra practice, but they are crucial in Tantra. The initial means of entry to these blessings is through the door of initiation. There are four classes of Tantras, action, performance, yoga, and highest yoga tantra, each with its own initiations to ripen the mind for practice, and each with its own meditations. Where do you receive initiation? In a mandala, comprised of ideal surroundings and divine residence, which are all manifestations of compassion and wisdom. There are mandalas of varying complexity for all four tantras. Some are painted, Others are constructed from colored sands, and still others comprise a special class of concentration mandalas. In order to receive initiation and to take vows in a mandala of Yoga Tantra or Highest Yoga Tantra, the Lama conducting the ceremony must have the full complement of qualifications. All four sets of tantras place special emphasis on the attributes of the Lama, in keeping with Buddha's detailed descriptions of teachers' qualifications for the various stages of the path. Remember also Buddha's admonition mentioned earlier to rely not just on the person, but on the doctrine. You should not be overwhelmed by a teacher's reputation. 
Most importantly, the teacher must know the doctrine, the practices, well. In the two lower tantra sets, action and performance, there is no clear indication that tantric vows must be taken upon initiation. Nevertheless, there are many pledges to be kept. In the two higher tantra sets, yoga and highest yoga, after receiving initiation with all of its facets, you must take tantric vows in addition to the pledges. Yoga Tantra and Highest Yoga Tantra have 14 basic vows, as well as lists of infractions to guard against. They differ in their respective paths, and therefore even the basic vows differ slightly. The practice of Tantra is mainly concerned with overcoming the appearance of yourself and your surroundings as ordinary. The aim of this is to overcome the conception of these as ordinary. Therefore, you first visualize yourself to have a Buddha's body, compassionate activities, resources, and abode. Hence, most of the pledges are concerned with substituting ideal for ordinary appearances. This imaginary substitution helps in restraining your own estimation of yourself, your companions, your environment, and your activities as being ordinary. Except for the particular vow of individual liberation that lasts just for 24 hours, all of the other vows of individual liberation are taken for an entire lifetime, although it is possible to rescind one's vows and give back one's ordination. By contrast, bodhisattva and tantric vows extend right through to the time of highest enlightenment, as long as one has not committed a root infraction. First, one assumes the morality of individual liberation. Then, one assumes bodhisattva morality. And finally, tantric morality. Householders who take the bodhisattva and tantric vows keep a householder's version of the vows of individual liberation. The Kalachakra Tantra, which flourished during the 11th century in India and became a principal tantra of the new translation schools in Tibet states that if there are three teachers of Tantra, one with householders' vows, another with the vows of a novice monastic, and a third with the vows of a full-fledged monastic, the person who has taken the vows of a full-fledged monastic should be considered higher than the others. This indicates the high estimation that even this Tantric system places on the monastic morality. The Guya Samaja Tantra similarly says that externally you should keep the discipline of the practice of individual liberation and internally maintain an affinity for the practice of Tantra. In these ways, the practice of Sutra and Tantra work together. In the practice of Tantra, it is possible to use sexual desire in the path. Let us begin to consider the role of sexual desire in the path in Tantra by looking at the prohibition against sexual misconduct in the morality of individual liberation, which is entirely based on the principle of refraining from harming others. Specific sexual misconduct is identified in detail in Vasubandhu's Treasury of Manifest Knowledge. For a male, it would be to cohabit with someone else's wife or with someone who is under the care of her family. For a female, it is the same. It is prohibited to cohabit with someone else's husband or with someone who is under the care of his family. Some have suggested ridiculously that since Vasubandhu's text explains the ten non-virtues from the viewpoint of a male, there is no fault if a female engages in the non-virtues, and thus there are no prohibitions for a female. 
This is ridiculous. For Buddhists, sexual intercourse can be used in the spiritual path because it causes a strong focusing of consciousness if the practitioner has firm compassion and wisdom. Its purpose is to manifest and prolong the deeper levels of mind, which I described earlier with respect to the process of dying. The aim is to put their power to use in strengthening the realization of emptiness. Otherwise, mere intercourse has nothing to do with spiritual cultivation. When a person has achieved a high level of practice in motivation and wisdom, then even the joining of the two sex organs, or so-called intercourse, does not detract from the maintenance of that person's pure behavior. Yogis who have achieved a high level of the path and are fully qualified can engage in sexual activity, and a monastic with this ability can maintain all the precepts. One Tibetan yogi adept, when criticized by another, said that he ate meat and drank beer as offerings to the Mandala deity. Such tantric practitioners visualize themselves as deities in a complete Mandala, within realization that the ultimate deity is the ultimate bliss, the union of bliss and emptiness, a bliss consciousness realizing emptiness. He also said that his sexual practice with a consort was undertaken for the sake of developing real knowledge, and that indeed is the purpose. Such a practitioner can make spiritual use not only of delicious meat and drink, but even of human excrement and urine. A yogi's meditation transforms these into real ambrosia. For people like us, however, this is beyond our reach. As long as you can't transform piss and shit, these other things should not be done. Buddha set out a specific series of stages on the path precisely for this reason. The preliminary stage is training in the vows of individual liberation. If you live as a monk or nun, your conduct has a more sound basis. There is little danger of excessive distraction. Even if you cannot fully implement such vows, there is not much risk. Then simply practice, practice, practice. Once you develop inner strength, you can control the four internal elements, earth, water, fire, and wind, or five elements if inner space is included. Once you can fully control these internal elements, then you can control the outer five elements. Then you can make use of anything. How does sexual intercourse help in the path? There are many different levels of consciousness. The potential of grosser levels is very limited, but the deeper, more subtle levels are much more powerful. We need to access these subtler levels of mind. But in order to do so, we need to weaken and temporarily stop grosser consciousness. To accomplish this, it is necessary to bring about dramatic changes in the flow of inner energies. Even though brief versions of the deeper levels of mind occur during sneezing and yawning, these obviously cannot be prolonged. Also, previous experience with manifesting the deeper levels is required to make use of their occurrence in deep sleep. This is where sex comes in. Through special techniques of concentration during sex, competent practitioners can prolong very deep, subtle, and powerful states and put them to use to realize emptiness. However, if you engage in sexual intercourse 
within an ordinary mental context, there is no benefit. A Buddha has no use for sexual intercourse. Deities depicted in a mandala are often in union with a consort, but this does not suggest that Buddhas have to rely on sexual intercourse for their bliss. Buddhas have full bliss within themselves. Deities spontaneously appear in mandalas in male-female union for the benefit of people with very sharp faculties who can make use of a consort and the bliss of sexual union in practicing the quick path of Tantra. In much the same way, the Tantric Buddha Vajradhara appears in peaceful aspects and wrathful aspects. But this does not mean that Vajradhara has these two aspects to his personality. Vajradhara is always totally compassionate. Rather, his spontaneous appearance in various ways is for the sake of trainees. Vajradhara appears in just the way that the trainee should meditate when using afflictive emotions such as lust or hatred in the process of the path. To corral such powerful emotions into the spiritual path, trainees cannot be imagining that they have the peaceful body of Shakyamuni Buddha. Deity yoga is required. Since in the case of hatred, for instance, it is necessary to meditate on your own body in a fierce form, Vajradhara automatically appears in the appropriate ferocious form to show the trainee how to meditate. The same is true for sexual yoga. Trainees who are capable of using the bliss arising from the desire involved in gazing, smiling, holding hands, or union, must perform the appropriate deity yoga. They could not be imagining themselves as Shakyamuni, a monk. The purpose of Vajradhara's various appearances is neither to scare the trainees nor to excite desire in them, but to show how to do imaginative meditation in those forms in order eventually to overcome afflictive emotions. A Buddha is capable of appearing spontaneously without exertion in whatever way is appropriate. The form of these appearances is shaped by the needs of others, not for the sake of that Buddha. From a Buddha's own point of view, that Buddha has the total self-fulfillment of the truth body in which he or she remains forever. Remember that tantric morality is built on the morality of individual liberation and on the morality of compassion. The aim of tantra is to achieve Buddhahood on a faster path in order to be of service to others more quickly. Summary for Daily Practice Since the practice of Tantra is primarily to transform how you see yourself, others, the environment, and your activities, it can be helpful to visualize yourself as having a compassionate motivation, a pure body, and conduct that benefits others. Part 6. Steps Along the Way Overview of the Path to Enlightenment In all forms of Buddhism, practice is based on the intention to leave cyclic existence. Additionally, in the Great Vehicle, you are motivated by the other concerned intention to become enlightened. In Tantra, through techniques that enhance the development of the concentrated meditation, which is the union of calm-abiding and special insight, you can achieve the state of Buddhahood in which all obstructions, 
the afflictive obstructions preventing liberation from cyclic existence, and the obstructions to omniscience preventing Buddhahood have been removed. A Buddha's qualities are described as different bodies, which can be divided into general types. The truth body, for the fulfillment of your own welfare, and the form bodies, for the fulfillment of others' welfare. Form bodies, in turn, can be divided by how they appear to beings on different levels of purity and impurity. Highly advanced trainees can access what is called the complete enjoyment body. Other levels of trainees experience a wide variety of emanation bodies. The truth body can also be divided into two types, the nature body and the exalted wisdom body. The nature body can be further subdivided into a state of natural purification and a state of purification of adventitious or caused defilements. The exalted wisdom truth body can be further divided according to many different viewpoints. Maitreya's Ornament for Clear Realization specifies 21 sets of uncontaminated exalted wisdoms which can be subdivided into 146 sets. Let me take a moment here to address the many misconceptions about whether or not women can attain Buddhahood. In the Sutra Great Vehicle, there is no indication that a woman cannot achieve Buddhahood. However, the texts state that during the practices for accumulating merit over three periods of countless great eons, you will arrive at a time when the karma you are working at will mature as the physical marks and beauties of a Buddha. At this time, according to the Sutra Great Vehicle, it helps to have a stronger physical support, so you naturally come to have the body of a male. Those texts also say that in the final lifetime, before you achieve Buddhahood, you need to have the body of a male. However, highest Yoga Tantra, which we consider to be the final system, says that not only can a woman achieve Buddhahood, but she can do so right in this lifetime. This has been a brief explanation of 1. The Ground, the Two Truths, Conventional and Ultimate. 2. The Paths Built on that Ground, Motivation and Wisdom. 3. The Fruits of the Paths, the Form Bodies and the Truth Body of a Buddha. It is helpful to have this overview of the structure of practice. But you need to remember that realization is generated through many causes and conditions, proper understanding, accumulation of merit, and overcoming of obstructions. If you have not first accumulated merit and purified ill deeds, it is difficult to gain realization just from trying to meditate. Therefore, it is important to work through each of the prerequisites. Engagement in the prerequisites is not just a matter of filling some sort of count or even of completing retreat for three years and three phases of the moon, as some might imagine from the fact that many retreats take this long or for any other period of time. Instead, you must accumulate merit and purify obstructions until certain realizations are generated. You may spend your entire lifetime doing so with the goal of improving future lives. Sometimes, because of a lack of knowledge, people who perform long retreats end up with considerable pride 
about the mere fact that they finished the retreat. The increase in pride yields an increase in anger, jealousy, and competitiveness. The same can happen with mere book knowledge of doctrine. It is not easy. Afflictive emotions are tricky. Practice is not something you do for a couple of weeks or a couple of years. It takes place over many lifetimes for eons and eons. As we have seen, some texts say enlightenment is achieved after accumulating the collections of merit and wisdom for three periods of countless great eons. If you consider this statement properly, it can encourage you to adopt a patient, persistent attitude through difficult circumstances. If learning this saddens you, this could be due to your desire to achieve Buddhahood swiftly out of your great concern for others. But it could also be a sign of insufficient courage. Enlightenment cannot be attained without working hard at it. To believe otherwise means you are harboring some form of selfishness. This is the entire process of the path. Even though Tibetans might not have wealth that can be kept in a wallet, they have this wealth that is kept in the mind. The stated good intentions of the various religions are not sufficient. We must implement them in daily life in society. Then we can know the real value of their teachings. If a Buddhist, for instance, meditates in a temple, but outside the temple does not enact those contemplative ideals, that is not good. We must practice in daily life. The real value of practice is seen when we face a difficult period. When we are happy and everything goes smoothly, then practice seems not so urgent. But when we face unavoidable problems, such as sickness, old age, death, or other desperate situations, it becomes crucial to control your anger, to control your emotional feelings, and to use your good human mind to determine how to face that problem with patience and calm. If we practice this way, our first hope is that we may overcome the problem. But if not, at least the problem cannot disturb your mental peace. That is good, isn't it? You are facing the situation and retaining your peace of mind, without taking drugs or trying to pull your thoughts away from it. That is why we take such great interest in our weekends and vacations. Five days a week you are very busy, working hard to make money. Then on the weekend you go to some remote place with that money and have a nice time. But this means that you are trying to take your mind off your problem. However, the problem is still there. On the other hand, if you have a good mental attitude, it is not necessary to divert yourself. When you can face the situation and analyze the problem, then, like a big piece of ice in the water, it will gradually melt away. If you practice sincerely, you will experience its real value. According to Buddha's own word, his teaching will last here for 5,000 years. At the end of that 5,000 years, it will finally be destroyed by someone who is a reincarnation of Buddha himself. Since when that day comes, there will be no further value in the teaching. However, there are a billion world systems like ours with limitless billions of those. In some of them, the teaching is newly being introduced. In some, it is waning. The teaching continually remains somewhere at all times. The Buddhas never disappear, and the teaching never vanishes.
Here in one place are the summaries for practice gathered from throughout the program. Focus on one suitable for your level at this point, or you could alternate among them over the course of a week. Cultivated patiently over time, the practices will become more and more familiar, and your life will become more and more meaningful. First topic, the morality of individual liberation. One, examine your motivation as often as you can. Even before getting out of bed in the morning, establish a nonviolent, non-abusive outlook for your day. At night, examine what you did during the day. Two, notice how much suffering there is in your own life. There is physical and mental pain which you naturally seek to avoid, such as sickness, aging, and death. Moreover, there are temporary experiences, like eating good food, that seem to be pleasurable in and of themselves but, if partaken continuously, turn into pain. This is the suffering of change. When a situation switches from pleasure to pain, reflect on the fact that the deeper nature of the original pleasure is revealing itself. Attachment to such superficial pleasures will only bring more pain. Reflect on how you are caught in a general process of conditioning that, rather than being under your own control, is under the influence of karma and afflictive emotions. 3. Gradually develop a realistic view of the body through examining its constituents, skin, blood, flesh, bone, and so forth. 4. Analyze your life closely. You will eventually find it difficult to misuse it by becoming machine-like or by merely seeking money as a surrogate for happiness. 5. Adopt a positive attitude in the face of difficulty. Imagine that by undergoing a difficult situation, you are also undermining worse consequences from other karmas that you would have to experience in the future. As a mental exercise, take upon yourself the burden of everyone's suffering of that type. 6. Evaluate the possible negative and positive effects of feelings such as lust, anger, jealousy, and hatred. When it becomes obvious that their effects are harmful, you will have arrived at the conclusion that there are no positive results, for instance, of anger. Analyze more and more, and gradually your conviction will strengthen. Repeated reflection on the disadvantages of anger will cause you to realize that it is senseless and even pathetic. This decision will cause your anger gradually to diminish. 7. Having recognized the scope of suffering, research its cause and identify that the source of suffering is ignorance of the true nature of persons and things and that lust, hatred, and so forth are based on this ignorance. Realize that suffering can be removed, can be extinguished into the sphere of reality. Reflect that this true cessation is attained through the practice of morality, concentrated meditation, and wisdom, the true paths. 8. Notice your attachments to food, clothes, and shelter, and adapt monastic practices of contentment to a layperson's life. Be satisfied with adequate food, clothing, and shelter. Use the additional free time for meditation so that you can overcome more problems. 9. Develop a strong wish 
to refrain from harming others, either physically or verbally, no matter whether you are embarrassed, insulted, reviled, pushed, or hit. Second topic, the morality of concern for others. Perform this five-step visualization for developing compassion. 1. Remain calm and reasonable. 2. In front of you to the right, imagine another version of yourself, egotistical and self-centered. 3. In front of you to the left, imagine a group of poor people, suffering beings who are unrelated to you, neither friend nor enemy. 4. Observe these two sides from your calm vantage point. Now think. Both want happiness. Both want to get rid of suffering. Both have the right to accomplish these goals. 5. Consider this. Just as usually we are willing to make temporary sacrifices for a greater, long-term good, so, the benefit of the larger number of suffering beings to your left is much more important than this single egotistical being on your right. Notice your mind naturally turning to the side of the greater number of people. Perform the ritual for the aspiration to enlightenment. First, take the seven preliminary steps. 1. Make homage to Shakyamuni Buddha, surrounded by innumerable bodhisattvas, whom you imagine filling the sky in front of you. 2. Offer all wonderful things, whether you own them or not, including your body, your resources, and your own virtue, to the Buddhas and bodhisattvas. 3. Disclose the countless ill deeds of body, speech, and mind you have perpetrated with an intent to harm others. Regret having done them and intend to abstain from them in the future. 4. Admire from the depths of the heart your own virtues and others' virtues. Take joy in the good things you have done in this and in previous lives, thinking, I really did something good. Also, take joy in the virtues of others, even including those of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. 5. Entreat the Buddhas, who have become completely enlightened but have not yet taught, to teach for the sake of those who suffer. 6. Supplicate the Buddhas not to pass away and to continue teaching. 7. Dedicate these six practices to attaining highest enlightenment. As a conclusion to these seven, offer the purified world system with all its wonders to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who teach compassion. Then undertake the central part of the ritual for aspiring to enlightenment. 1. With a strong determination to attain Buddhahood in order to serve other beings, imagine a Buddha in front of you or your spiritual teacher as a representative of Buddha. 2. Recite three times as if you are repeating after him or her until I reach enlightenment, I seek refuge in Buddha, the Doctrine, and the Supreme Spiritual Community. Through the collections of merit of my giving, morality, patience, effort, concentration, and wisdom, may I achieve Buddhahood in order to help all beings. To maintain and strengthen this profound altruism in this life, perform the following. 1. Recall again and again the benefits of developing an intention to become enlightened 
for the sake of others. 2. Divide the day into three periods and the night into three periods, and during each of those periods, take a little time out or rouse yourself from sleep and practice the five-step visualization given earlier. It is also sufficient to visualize the five steps three times in one morning session that lasts around 15 minutes and three times in one night session for 15 minutes. 3. Avoid mentally neglecting the welfare of even one being. 4. As much as possible, engage in virtuous activity with a good attitude and develop a rough understanding of the nature of reality or maintain a wish to do so and work at it. To maintain and strengthen this profound altruism in future lives, 1. Do not lie to anyone at all unless you can help others greatly through lying. 2. Directly or indirectly help people to progress toward enlightenment. 3. Treat all beings with respect. 4. Never cheat anyone and always remain honest. In essence, think again and again, may I become able to help all beings. Topic 3. Concentrated Meditation 1. Choose an object of meditation and focus your mind on it, trying to achieve and maintain stability, clarity, and intensity. Avoid laxity and excitement. 2. Alternatively, identify the fundamental state of the mind unsullied by thought, just in its own state, mere luminosity, the knowing nature of the mind. With mindfulness and introspection, remain in that state. If a thought arises, just look into the very nature of that thought itself. This will cause it to lose its power and dissolve of its own accord. Topic 4. Wisdom As an exercise in identifying how objects and beings falsely appear in perception, try the following. 1. Observe how an item such as a watch appears in a store when you first notice it. Then observe how its appearance changes and becomes even more concrete as your interest grows. Finally, observe how it appears after you have bought it and consider it to be your own. 2. Notice at various times how you yourself appear to your mind as if existent in and of yourself without depending on mind and body. 3. Then, frequently reflect on how phenomena arise depending on causes and conditions, and observe how this contradicts the way people and things appear to exist in their own right to exist inherently. If you tend toward nihilism, reflect more on dependent arising. If by concentrating on causes and conditions, you tend to reinforce the inherent existence of phenomena, put more emphasis on how dependence contradicts this so solid appearance. You will probably be pulled from one side to the other. The true middle way takes time to find. Also, 1. Identify the luminous and knowing nature of the mind, unclouded by thoughts and without any conceptual overlay. 2. Probe the deeper nature of the mind repeatedly to reveal its absence of inherent existence its emptiness. 
reflect on the mind's dependence on causes and conditions as well as its dependence on its parts. For the mind, any length of time, whether one minute or the shortest moment, depends on earlier and later parts of that time period. 3. Try to realize the compatibility of the appearance of the mind and its emptiness of inherent existence. See how these two mutually support each other. Topic 5. Tantra Since the practice of Tantra is primarily to transform how you see yourself, others, and the environment, it can be helpful to visualize yourself as having a compassionate motivation, pure body, and activities benefiting others. Though my own knowledge is limited, and my experience is also very poor, I have tried my best to help you understand the full breadth of the Buddha's teaching. Please implement whatever in this program appears to be helpful. If you follow another religion, please adopt whatever might assist you. If you do not think it would be helpful, it would be best just to leave it alone. How to Practice was written by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and read by the translator and editor, Dr. Jeffrey Hopkins. The recording engineer was Terry Hogan, with editing by Dan Mackesy and post-production by Frog Pond Productions. The mix engineer was Rick Bradley. The associate producer was Kelly Gilday. How to Practice, The Way to a Meaningful Life was produced and directed by Karen Frillman. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio. Also available from Simon & Schuster Audio, His Holiness the Dalai Lama's Live in a Better Way, Ethics for the New Millennium, The Path to Tranquility, The Art of Happiness, and The Dalai Lama in America series. How to Practice, The Way to a Meaningful Life is also available in book form from Pocket Books.